Right now, switch your family to T-Mobile and get four lines for $25 a line with AutoPay and 5G access included on America's largest 5G network. So don't wait. Get unlimited and nationwide 5G access for the whole family for just $25 a line. Visit a T-Mobile store or T-Mobile.com today. Plus taxes and fees. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using over 50 gigs a month due to data prioritization. Video at 480p. Unlimited while on our network. Qualifying credit and four plus lines required. Capable device required for 5G. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain features. See T-Mobile.com. The Leslie Marshall Show. A true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you. The people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host for today, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm joined by my colleague, Edward Theogene. So uh, today, um, as you all know, uh, last week was March. This week is August. It's 2020. And that means that uh, school districts are beginning to prepare or are already in the thick of returning to uh, to school here. Uh, it feels like the weeks and months have been flying by. It seems like things are changing by the minute. But the one constant, unfortunately, is that the coronavirus pandemic is continuing uh, and continues to, to largely spread uncontrolled in the number of cities and states across the country. You know, this was the time, uh, you know, a decade ago when I was a school teacher that I was back in my classroom, making sure that the walls were set up, making sure that I had the desks right to welcome students back. But this year for schools and for teachers, navigating back to, uh, navigating back to school means navigating the threat posed by the pandemic. Uh, especially now as cases, hospitalizations and deaths have uh, again begun to climb in, in many places. So uh, Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos have pushed hard for in-person schooling to resume, even threatening to withhold federal funding from schools that uh, make the decision to open online through virtual learning. Uh, but experts, parents, teachers are wary of the inevitable, and students, I'll say, uh, are, inev- are wary of the, of the safety risks that would come from bringing students, teachers, and staff back on campus. So, uh, you know, aside from the academic challenges here, though, of distance learning, which we know are real, schools are also trying to figure out other challenges, like do students have the technology that they need at home um, for students who rely on schools for uh, food stability? Uh, how will how will students and families get what they need if schools are not in session? So to talk more about the many aspects of returning to school or not, um, as is the case in many places and rightfully so, uh, we are joined today by two incredible experts, Kalila Harris, the Managing Director of the K-12 Policy Team at the Center for American Progress, and Elizabeth Davis, the President of the Washington Teachers Union here in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us, Kalila and Elizabeth. Thank you for inviting me. 
thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to want to jump right into this. I can tell you as a, as a parent of a public school student, I have lots of thoughts about this, which probably will. Um, but before we get into the heart of the conversation, just want to uh, give our listeners a, a very quick um, uh, overview of the work that you all do. So uh, Kalila, if you could just share a little bit about the K-12 policy team at CAP and, and what you all are currently, uh, sort of the, the mission that or the work that you all do there. Sure. So the K-12 team at Center for American Progress is focusing right now on making sure um, in the face of the coronavirus, we are pursuing the right levels of funding so that all children have access uh, to some quality of education and that the Congress is making sure that they provide funding that will support schools reopening in the safest manner possible. More broadly, we focus our work on community-informed policy, um, using a racial equity lens to any policies we develop. Um, that ranges from modernizing the teaching profession, making sure all children are prepared for the future of work, um, certainly investments in public education, which should be quadrupled. Um, and, you know, it's really important for us to make sure that communities engage in policymaking and that policy isn't done to them, but with them. Awesome. Thanks, Kayla. And, and um, Elizabeth, the, the same question for you, if you could just share a little bit about the mission and work of the Washington Teachers Union uh, and your role as, as president of the union. And thank you. And I want to say thank you also to Kalila and the Center for American Progress for the work they're doing to ensure that our schools will reopen safely. The WTU um, is working towards that same end, uh, that our schools not only will reopen in the fall, but this summer. We pushed very hard to ensure that we had a 100% virtual opening for uh, summer programs because our schools were not, we knew that our schools were not prepared to accept students or teachers safely. So first and foremost, our teachers are deeply concerned about the challenges that our students and their families face during the time they've been out of school due to the pandemic. Uh, our teachers understand, much like our parents, that distance learning can never be an, as effective as in-person teaching for our students. And it's for this reason that our teachers want to get back to in-person teaching as quickly as possible, but insist that we need to do this safely. We want to ensure that our students, all school workers, teachers, principals, will be able to return to brick and mortar building safely. We don't want this decision or the process to be guided by the crazed, misguided ramblings and guidance of a president or secretary of education who suggests that our students and teachers can be used as guinea pigs in an experiment in reopening scenarios driven by politics and threats of defunding local governments who fail to comply with these insane politically driven mandates. So I'm happy to know that our mayor and our school system chancellor decided to open virtually. Uh, teachers, number one, uh, have been advocates for students, students who are the most vulnerable students, special ed students, ELL students. In my opinion, as a teacher of 40 years in DC public schools, I happen to know that our teachers are dedicated professionals who care deeply about our students. They were contacting the union long before our schools closed to inquire about how students would receive meals, uh, knowing that we have 7,000 students who are coming to our schools daily from homeless shelters. So our teachers were con calling in early to raising concerns about Wi-Fi access. We surveyed our members 
5,000 of them to learn that 47,000 households in D.C. did not have uh, computers or Wi-Fi or Internet access. And that was a major concern to teachers, knowing that we were going to have to transition very quickly from brick-and-mortar teaching to distance learning. And they were concerned about the students who may not have had the ability or the opportunity to access distance learning because they did not have the devices or the connectivity to access those lessons. So we have basically decided as a union that we've got to address issues that affect the families of the students we teach. We cannot just focus on bread and butter issues any longer. That's not the order of the day. Our teachers insist that we have got to focus on those issues impacting our students and their families, including homelessness, employment, unemployment, housing, rent control. All of those issues impact what we do in our schools daily as educators, and we cannot ignore those. And we've decided that we have got to advocate for the supports that our families, their students and their families need in order for our students to engage all of them in whatever uh, is available. And accessing learning online is a constitutional right, in my opinion. Public schools have a right to have an obligation to educate all children. During this pandemic, we already know that virtual learning, distance learning, is the order of the day. So we cannot ignore the fact that we may have 35% of our students who cannot access distance learning or online learning because they do not have access to devices, computers, or Wi-Fi. We have got to hit to acknowledge that and fight head on to ensure that when we reopen in the fall, and at some point when we decide to reopen in person, all of those constraints, all of those challenges that families and our students and families face. We want them erased. We want to close the digital divide. We do not want a city government or a school district leadership that is going to use the scarcity lie that we do not have the resources to ensure that all of our students are given the support and access to learning that they, are, that they deserve. So that is the goal of the WTU. And of course, we have allies. I'm so happy to hear that. Uh, and thank you for inviting us to talk about this today. Kalila, the Center for American Progress, is one of our favorite organizations. We're going to continue to work with them and other, and other groups throughout the city to ensure that all of our students have access to learning, whether we open virtually or in person. And some of these inequities that exist and have, and have been magnified by COVID-19 are inequities that have existed since 1953, Brown v. Board. Yes. led to white flight from one part of the city to the west. As a black teacher who has taught in D.C. public schools for 40 years, I've learned a lot of lessons about the disparity, how schools are treated from zip code to zip code, from ward to ward. Mm -hmm. And we cannot be silent any longer about those disparities. We cannot ignore the fact that we have basically what used to be a dual school system, which is now a triple school system uh, with so, the charter schools. Elizabeth, when we... I'm sorry to jump in. When we come back from break, we're going to hear more about the inequities that are existing in public schools and how the WTU is addressing them. We'll be right back. Thank you. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Hello, and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. 
Thank you for joining us. Um, today, we are talking about schools reopening and the COVID-19 pandemic. We're joined by two really awesome guests, uh, Khalil Harris, who is at our CAP uh, K through 12 policy team. And we're also joined by the president of the Washington Teachers Union, Elizabeth A. Davis. Hello, Khalil. Hello, Elizabeth. Hey, how are you? Hello. Hi, how are you? Um, so jumping back into this really important conversation, um, Kalila, we've seen a lot of pressure from Donald Trump and the White House to reopen schools in person, despite the fact that many parts of the country are currently experiencing surges in COVID-19 cases. Why do you think this is and why is it such a risk? It's a huge risk because as we've seen, even as, as schools have begun to open uh, in the Deep South, um, we've seen uh, students in uh, schools having to quarantine entire classes in a couple of days. Uh, we saw a school district where there were 260 educators sent back home to quarantine because of exposure uh, to one or more colleagues with COVID-19. Uh, if we don't follow the science, we're not only putting students at risk, we're putting educators at risk and everyone who lives with those children uh, and adults. So it's it's super important that people are following the science. And what we've seen is COVID is a pretty efficient virus. Uh, when we have, let's see, 54% of school buildings in this country are um, in some level of disrepair, right? There are not opening windows. The HVAC is not functioning. Uh, the water is closed off due to lead. For those reasons, students should not be sent back into those buildings um, because there's no amount of precaution that can be taken to, to make those spaces safe. And so, you know, it really, it really is a situation where people are not um, are making this a very political conversation instead of making this a conversation about public health. And they're also conflating two different things. One is making sure our students have continuous learning to support their developmental growth and that they're able to participate in society. The other is supporting parents who have to go to work. And those are two very different things. So the idea that the way we get parents to work is to open schools, render schools as daycare centers and not as places where meaningful learning and engagement happens. Uh, so that's a mistake. And we see uh, school districts like in Harford County, Maryland, they'll be opening 100% virtual, uh, but they will have something called learning centers, which will be little hubs in every school that opens up to a small number of families who really need their students supervised during the day to get uh, breakfast and lunch and to be able to use the Wi-Fi. That is a conscientious plan to say we know members of our community really need our support to have a place for their children to go. But we also know writ large our schools cannot open safely. It's not a possibility. And so, you know, the political layer um, being placed over this by the president and um, other members of Congress is really nonsensical. Also, some governors, it really doesn't make sense, in fact, uh, because, you know, <laughs> we hear the statistic that 99% of people will recover from COVID um, in a population where COVID is unchecked. That 1% of the U.S. population is 3.2 million people. So it's really crazy that people would say, well, you know, 1% of people won't survive, but 99% will. Okay, 
who's going to leave their families open as tribute for that 3.2 million? When it's in that that framework, people shift their opinions and rightfully so, you know, in the face of science. Yeah, I mean, and something that you said there, Cleela, really resonates, which is it's there's been so much conversation about, oh, well, look at kids, they're less likely to get COVID or they're less likely to die from COVID, which is a pretty stark thing to say to begin with, but completely ignoring and and intentionally ignoring the fact that kids don't live by themselves. And so children are living with parents, they're living with grandparents, they're living with guardians. Teachers are in the classroom of all different ages. Kids and teachers and staff members all may have pre-existing conditions that make them more or less susceptible. And so this idea that we can simply point to one cherry-picked point of data and say, oh, look, everything is fine, we can reopen schools, is really a ridiculous approach to this, especially because we don't even know the long-term impacts that recovering from COVID has on a person's health, especially a child's health. So, you know, it's such a a key point that you made there that I wanted to underscore. Um, Elizabeth, we have have just a, a couple of minutes here. And so before going to our next break. And so thinking about uh, voices that have been represented in conversations around school reopening in DC, could you share a little bit about uh, the conversations you and and, and your uh, union leadership have had around school reopenings and and whether there are uh, voices that haven't been included um, or perhaps have been included and you'd like to see included other places across the country as well? Well, one of the things that, and thank you for asking that, the most important question, we have basically focused a lot of attention on getting our city and school district leaders to include the voices of parents and teachers in conversations and decisions around how our schools reopen. We cannot exclude those voices. It's, It's disrespectful in so many ways. When you think of the multicultural aspect of families that we serve in our schools, ELL populations, special education populations. We cannot make decisions about how we reopen our schools safely without including the voice of parents of those of those families, families, students, teachers. So we, and, and I'm happy to know that, that our mayor decided to reopen uh, virtually um, in August, but there are a number of issues that we want as a teacher's union for our city and school district leaders to address in a very honest way the inequities that existed long before COVID-19, the, uh, around housing, homelessness, economic employment, and 7,000 students, of course, coming to our schools every day from homeless shelters. We do not want our city and school district leaders to ignore the fact that it's important for teachers and parents to be engaged in conversations about how we reopen our schools safely. Um, the focus you know, we want it to be guided by science and not by politics and the pressures that's coming from a misguided and ill-informed president and secretary of education who seems to have more of an interest in using our teachers and students as subjects of an experiment. We do not want our city leaders and our school district leaders to be guided by that. And I heard uh, mentioned earlier uh, the notion that the president wants to basically threaten to defund those school districts and cities who refuse, who refuse to comply with reopening. So we know that his interest is not in the best interest of parents, especially parents of color. So we are basically working very closely with our mayor to ensure that whatever plans are in place for reopening in the fall, in person, 
diagnostic will be guided by the science, will be guided by whatever DC Health, the Office of the State Superintendent of Education and CDC is saying, mm -hmm. uh, basically use that as a guidepost for how we reopen. And, and of course, our parents who have been left out of these discussions, who are very par paranoid and not really trusting information that is coming from our city leaders, this is something that has happened over been over a decade where parents have been left out of the decision-making process. So we can't expect parents and teachers to suddenly trust what the city and school district leaders are saying will be in place. That's we right. We want them to be involved. We want them to be involved. And Thank you so much. We are going to go to a break. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Hello and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm your other co-host, Edwin Theogene. And we are back here doing a remote show, of course, uh, talking about the reopenings of school, when it's safe to do it, when it's not safe to do it, whose voices need to be at the table, the impact on teachers, the impact on parents, the impact on students. Um, and we are joined by Kalila Harris, the Managing Director of the Center for American Progress's K-12 team, policy team, as well as Elizabeth Davis, the President of the Washington Teachers Union. Uh, thank you both for coming back with us. Thank you. So, yeah, so, we, so we've talked a bit, and, and, and I'm going to sort of go off script just a little bit here for a second. We've talked quite a bit about all the reasons why it doesn't make sense to open um, um, schools in person in a sort of traditional fashion right now. From a public health standpoint, um, the conversation reads a lot like my Twitter feed over the last few weeks as I was, as a parent of a student, anxiously waiting the decision from the mayor to see whether or not our schools were going to be open and whether uh, the decision was going to be sort of passed down to parents. And I was, you know, Elizabeth, much like you, glad to see the, the mayor step in and decide that the prudent thing to do here was to uh, start virtually with distance learning. Uh, there's a, there, you know, I, I don't want to gloss over and I at least want to mention, even if it doesn't become a point of conversation, that having, particularly for working parents, um, trying to both be a working parent, especially for those who are either both for those who are forced to go into the office or to work and those who are working from home, it's incredibly difficult to do that and also uh, have children at home with no daycare uh, or no childcare. Uh, that having been said, this is like, that is a real issue and it's a real concern, but that doesn't mean that we expose everyone. I just didn't want to gloss over that fact because I know parents and, and I can say from my own experience, it can be incredibly overwhelming trying to, to, to both parent and be teacher and be full-time employee all at the same time. Um, but there are reasons why reopening schools right now that just simply doesn't make sense. So, you know, Kalila, turning to you, like what has the CAP K-12 policy team recommended when it comes to, to school this fall? Um, and, you know, do you have any tips on how this can be as, as straightforward as possible for teachers, parents, and students? And and have your recommendations changed because of the recent uprisings for racial justice? Absolutely. So first and foremost, uh, we put out, uh, I put out a piece actually uh, talking about 
hearing the voices, like Elizabeth said, of family members, educators, and students themselves in regards to what school should look like going forward, but not just from a PPE standpoint and a public health standpoint. Schools were not working for too many children before COVID. And so we need to really be using this time potentially, potentially to slow down a bit so that we can speed up. Right. So if we if we insist that schools must open at the end of August, which is very strange because it did not open in August when I was a kid. Um, these are these are false timelines, just as grade level are false constructs. Right. Students don't learn uh, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. They generally are learning in bands. Right. They may advance in some things and other things they need more time to work on. And that's developmentally appropriate, but we've created all kinds of structures that really work for a white heteronormative culture and not necessarily for people who bring different cultural norms to the schoolhouse. So we've been recommending all districts engage family members in authentic ways. We recommend that, you know, we follow the science. We must follow the science. So if you're in Vermont or Hawaii where you've had zero deaths, you may decide that there are ways to open safely but they don't, they don't have zero cases in those locations. So that's another decision. When it comes to the racial unrest we're experiencing, that goes more deeply into um, exactly what students are learning when they return to school. We are going to launch a new campaign with our partners at EduColor, which is a national um, organizing collaborative around socially just schools. And the campaign's called hashtag WeBuildEDU. We'll be lifting up the voices of educators of color specifically, and that's educator capital E. So if you're a bus driver, a librarian, guidance counselor, teacher, administrator, um, cafeteria employee, janitor, anybody who is directly dealing with children, uh, we want to hear from you about how things uh, happened in the spring in terms of when school let out. We also want to hear your thoughts on how schools should be structured in the future to really make sure we're practicing culturally sustaining and affirming practices um, and not using that as code word for the black kids or the Latinx kids. But all children right. should be seen by their educators. Right. I like to use the example of um, uh, if you're in Appalachia in a, in a classroom with 30 blonde hair, blue eyed children and you go uh, and you're all climate, climate, climate and we need to save the planet and we need to stop cutting down trees. But half of the kids in the classroom, uh, their parents are coal miners and the other half of the kids in the classroom, their parents are loggers. You are not practicing culturally responsive uh, education. Right. It's not about mm -hmm. us. it's about seeing the children who are in the room in front of you and making sure they're exposed to an expanse of the world that they live in. So when you go to an affluent suburb that's predominantly white, um, those children also need to see uh, racially diverse educators. They need to learn about cultures other than their own because they then will participate in a society that sees everyone and not just them as the primary unit. So that, you know, this instance of civil unrest that we're in right now is really a gift, I think, for people to, to wake up and understand we have not been preparing our children to under, understand things like the civil war was not about states' rights. <laughs> and that that, you know, we should not be <laughs> memorializing traitors to this country in statues. So those things are really moving us in a direction where we have children able to be civically engaged from facts and not from 
fantasies created by people who really don't see their humanity. Amen. Yes. Yes, I wanted to say that too. <laughs> Amen to all of that. And I really appreciate yeah. you also saying Kalila, educator with a capital E. Yeah. So shout out to all the speech yeah. therapists that are out there in the schools too. Yep. Everybody, uh, social workers, everybody. Yeah. Bring everybody to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth, I know you've been working really hard within the district uh, to work with the mayor and work with all different kinds of folks to bring them to the table. Are there any general asks that we should be thinking about on a national level, um, like federally or to the Department of Education? Absolutely. And of course, I don't know how effective the ask the Department of Education is going to be, but funding, especially funding that is directly associated with COVID-19, uh, is needed in all of our school districts. We do know that in D.C., we did not receive any additional dollars uh, that would, uh, would support COVID-related uh, activities in our schools, supports that are needed, safety protocols that needs to be instituted in each of our schools. Our council simply did not uh, provide additional funds for that, and we know that we need that. One of the major issues for us is, and Kalila alluded to it, the digital divide, which has existed in D.C. for decades. As a teacher of 40 years in D.C. and Ward 7 and 8 schools, I do know that that is an issue that has prevailed for years but has not really been addressed in any real way, any sustainable way, basically with Band-Aid approaches. COVID-19 has basically magnified these inequities. The digital divide revealed to us that 47,000 households in D.C. do not have computers or Internet a broadband connectivity. So we know that if we reopen virtually on August 31st, with this number of families and students without access to opportunities to learn, in my opinion, it would be a constitutional, it would be an injustice. We do know that we have many students, I indicated that we have 7,000 students who are homeless, but we also have a number of families who are not homeless, but are not able to have internet access or computers at home. We should not reopen our schools knowing this virtually in August and not addressing it beforehand. We will get to the in-person to take the protocols, but for us to reopen our schools, and our teachers have expressed this passionately, please bear down on the council. And I'm I'm, I'm basically asking them to work with, with me on doing this. We need to make our council, city, and school leaders understand we cannot reopen our schools in the fall with the challenges that our families and students face during the distance learning when we close. We already know what the realities are, and we don't want to glaze over it. We don't want to pretend that we have adequate resources. We want to, We basically want to address it head on. We don't want Band-Aid approaches. And we want yes. to be very honest in acknowledging that these inequities exist. Yes. And we cannot ignore it. We cannot fund dog carts and bridges and, and stadiums and ignore our children. Thank you so much. We will be right back uh, with the the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real talk. 
Hello, and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. Thank you. Today, we are back talking about schools reopening and COVID-19. We're joined by the lovely and brilliant Kalila Harris and the lovely and brilliant Elizabeth A. Davis. Uh, Kalila is on our CAP policy team that focuses on K-12, through and Elizabeth Davis is the president of the Washington Teachers Union. Um, so just opening this up, if people, whether they are teachers, parents, or students, or themselves, want to take action on the issue, um, Kalila, what are some suggestions that you have for folks to get involved? Absolutely. So the first thing they should do is stay involved with their school board as they continue to meet. Um, education is a very local matter, even though there are implications from federal policymakers and state lawmakers. Stay close to your school boards. You can't imagine how critical it is for them to hear your voices, voices directly. And whether or not they make the right decisions, um, they are listening, I believe. Stay at the school board level. The other thing is, you know, we have a situation where parents who are more affluent or parents who have the wherewithal to coordinate with other families are creating what some people are calling pods, some people are calling um, other types of uh, forms that they're coordinating these things so their children have access to small group learning. Um, they'll be able to do their distance learning in these pods with educators or, uh, you know, college students or other people for pay. And so I think it's important for uh, families who have that wherewithal to be very conscious about the equity implications and connect with their school leaders and their district leaders to figure out how they can extend that to families who don't have that wherewithal, to families who do live in the digital divide. If you are paying for a tutor with a group of four other in a cluster, will you afford um, two, one to two families who cannot pay into the cluster to join your children? So those are the things that parents can do right now. Stay close to the school board. Um, don't let things go by you and think, you know, they're just going to let us know in a few months because things will happen rather quickly as we see this virus ebb and flow. That's right. That that point, Kalila, around learning pods is so important. A good friend of mine launched a uh, sort of, and this is such an issue that folks are sort of pushed to to resort to things like GoFundMe. A good friend launched a GoFundMe account to try and crowdsource money so that students whose families don't have the resources to pay teachers privately to develop their own learning pods could also have access to that incredibly important distance learning resource, small group learning resource at a time of a global pandemic. And so having that wherewithal, that understanding to know like, hey, this is an example of inequity in real time, even if it feels like a, and, and may be something that's important to a particular family, not everyone has access to that. Um, yeah, so I so just such an important point there. Uh, Elizabeth, thinking about what parents or students can do, whether DC or or outside of DC, are there any particular recommendations that you have uh, for stakeholders, parents, teachers, et cetera, on how they can um, stay engaged and, and communicate what it is that, that they think is, is best for their families and communities? Absolutely, and thank you for asking. The WTU has launched several campaigns uh, in collaboration with the members of 
uh, the faith community, the Central Labor Council, ward specific education councils to work on issues around equity. Um, school librarians is one of them. The digital divide is one. Adequately funding our schools is another. Our website, www.wtulocal6.org. Individuals who will go to our website will find petitions supporting the need for us to have adequate funding for our schools, a librarian in every school. We have various campaigns that we've launched and it will continue throughout the summer to focus on closing the opportunity gaps, closing the digital divide for students in DC. And these are, these are basically inequities that have, have been have existed for decades, but we don't want after the pandemic to go back to the norm. We want these to be sustainable solutions to addressing those inequities. And we invite parents and other organizations to join us in fighting for and advocating for, uh, for doing this work. So I want to thank and specifically thank the Center for American Progress for the work that they've done. We have been inspired by it, uh, and they are certainly one of our partners in this work. Uh, but that our website will have information that will guide you to any um, any com any committee or task force that you want to work with uh, on ensuring that we address some of the issues related to COVID-19, but also issues that that existed prior to the pandemic. Hey, Brent, if there's something, if I can jump in really quickly. Yeah, um, go for it. Yeah, just wanted to um, lift up a couple of things. One thing that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about um, is mental health and the trauma that's being faced by students and educators. Yeah, yeah and parents. Yeah, and parents. So we are pressing for school districts to make sure they stand up some methodology, with, um, whether it's through telehealth or secured Zoom meetings where students can have drop-in guidance counseling or drop-in um, social work time in the way they would if they were in school, right? Students would be able to just knock on the door, say, hey, we didn't have lights yesterday, or mom came home late, or, you know, my foster parent isn't being nice to me. They, they could just walk in 10, 15 minutes and get access to that time, and they don't have it mm -hmm. right now. Secondarily, there are thousands tens of thousands of children who no one has seen or heard from since March. Communities, city governments, it, this should not rest only on schools. People need to be deployed to go lay eyes on those children. Children are at risk for physical, uh, sexual, mental abuse in homes. Um, and, and, and no one child should be in that situation. Too many children the only person who would see it or see signs of it are people at school. And so we need to make sure we lay eyes on all children. And if for nothing else, you know, it's not the case that all of those kids are suffering from abuse. It's also a case that some students might have been thrust into homelessness. Um, some students, mm -hmm. uh, their parents might have gotten caught up in some kind of ice raid because that is cruelly continuing to happen. So it's important for localities to make sure they lay eyes on all students who were enrolled in their schools in March or connect with somebody who knows where the family went. I appreciate you lifting that up, Kalula, because with this pandemic, this is community trauma. Like all of us are impacted um, by what is happening. and. I appreciate us lifting up trying to provide resources and answer that gap for our students, as well as for the professionals who are in our schools teaching our students, because they're also impacted by this moment, too. That's right. Yeah. yeah. 
And to Kalula's point, during our virtual school visits with teachers in, in all 115 schools, teachers shared stories of uh, their inability to engage with students who many of them were in shelters who did not have uh, internet access. But one teacher, a fourth grade teacher, shared with us a story where he attempted to reach out to a fourth grader who he knew was homeless, only to discover two weeks later that she lost her mother and her grandmother within two days apart, the grandmother to COVID and the mother to cancer. And the, 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 the trauma that he internalized, I'm not even sure if he recognized that he had internalized the trauma of that student because he felt totally unable uh, to connect to this student and to assist her and support her in any way. So our teachers and our students and their families need to have this social and emotional support. A lot of it has been magnified by, by COVID-19, but much of it existed long before the pandemic. That's right. And I'll, you know, I'll just note my, uh, my brother's a longtime teacher out in Los Angeles. And when teachers went on strike there last school year, it wasn't about teacher pay. It wasn't about uh, what folks assumed it was. It was about making sure counselors and healthcare professionals and nurses had access to students yeah. who were in schools. And so we know that this is an issue that existed long before and is amplified now. So that's, unfortunately, we've got to bring this conversation to a close here. Want to make sure that folks know where to find you to, to, to see more. Uh, Elizabeth, they can follow the Washington Teachers Union at WTU Teacher on Twitter or visit them online at yeah. WTULocal6.net and Kalila.org, WTULocal6.org. And Kalila, folks can follow you at Ed Progress. Is that right? Correct. Ed Progress is the handle for the Center for American Progresses, K-12 team. My Twitter is at Ed2BeFree. Um, actually, that's on all of my handles. So you can find me on IG, Facebook, Twitter. But please do follow us for the resources we have available. And also just to lift up ideas you may have. We are very committed to hearing from community and letting them lead us on our policy and um, research agenda. Amazing. So that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to... I want to, Kalila, I want you to know that I'd like to connect with you after this call. Sounds good. Amazing. Yes, make it happen. So that's, that's all the time we have for today. We want to thank our guests, Elizabeth Davis and Kalila Harris, our producer, Mark Grimaldi, our senior press associate, Emily Leach, and to all of our listeners. Please make sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at GenProgress. We'll talk to you again on our next Generation Progress Takeover, the Leslie Marshall Show. Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day. a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day.